So today, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, for those of you that were brought up in maybe some different traditions or something, this is uh, the beginning of Holy Week, uh, the Passion of the Christ. It's the final week of Lent. It's the final week leading up to Good Friday. Now, for the Jewish um, observers, this was the beginning of Passover, And there's a big significance in this week, both in Christianity and in Judaism. And this is one of those weeks that you truly want to be mindful and purposeful in the way that you engage in your relationship with Christ, the way that you engage in your thoughtfulness towards God. And we need to keep on our minds that God sets something in motion that as we think about this week, as we think about the, the events and how things move, God kicked something into motion so many years ago. And we want to help you along in that. We want to encourage you in that. And so if you saw coming in, there were some prayer, prayer guides that you could pick up. But listen, if you didn't pick one up and you're more of an electronic type person, don't worry if we have your email address and you receive emails from us already guess what? You're going to get one every day. Isn't that great? 6 a.m., I expect you to be awake to read it. (laughs) No? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. As as we think about that and as we move through the week, we have all kinds of opportunities for you to engage in your relationship with God, to grow deeper in your faith, to think about the events of the week. And we also on Wednesday are going to offer an opportunity for you to come and to take communion together as a family. Uh, Between 5.30 and 7.30, you can just kind of drop in and take communion. There's going to be some music and some prayerful items for you to think on. And then you can come when you're ready and take communion together as a family, as a couple, uh, by yourself, if that's how you're coming. And it's all about centering our hearts and our minds around the epicness of what this week means. So today as we look at this account, we're kind of dropping in on a time of triumph, in a time of celebration. In this time of triumph and celebration, it didn't stay as a triumph and a celebration, it turned into betrayal. This week is celebratory, then it's betrayal, then it's condemnation. And the climax of all of this week is found on Easter Sunday with the resurrection of Jesus. So regardless of where you are with historical fact, where you are with Jesus, regardless of those things, it was in fact seven days that absolutely changed the world. You only need to look at the way that we divide time. You only need to look at the reference point of chronology. It was seven days that changed the world. And I believe those seven days that changed the world have the power to continue to change the world. These seven days inspired painters. The Renaissance, it inspired so many people to depict the things that were going on in the life of Jesus. It inspired architecture. It's been the subject of films, of books, of all kinds of media. More than one sermon apparently has been preached about this. 
it had huge cultural and historical significance. In fact, I think it's almost impossible to calculate the ramifications of this week. And what we're going to do is we're going to look in the New Testament, and we're going to look at, in the New Testament at the book of Luke in chapter 19. And one thing that you need to know about the book of Luke is it was written as a response to maybe a relationship that Luke had with a, a person named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, we don't really know anything about Theophilus, but we know that Luke took it upon himself to write an orderly account, to write an orderly account of what he saw. In the beginning of his letter, he said, I want to give you, most excellent Theophilus, an orderly account of what has happened among us. Luke was writing about something that he saw. Luke was writing about something that people had experienced. So in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, here's what Luke says. And when he, that's Jesus, had said these things, and the things that he said are pretty uh, significant, but we're not going to talk about them today. But when Jesus had said these things, he went on up ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethany, or Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two disciples ahead, saying, go into the village. I want you to go into the village in front of you, and when you're entering, you're going to see a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie the donkey, the colt, and bring it here. Now, Jesus is you know, grand theft donkey here. And so if anyone asks you though, why are you untying this donkey? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just like Jesus has said, like he kind of knew what was going on. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, hey, why are you untying the colt? I think that's a pretty natural question. And I don't really think it was, hey, why are you untying the colt? It's, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they're like, oh, by all means then, please go right on ahead. And so they untied the colt, they took it they, to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt, and they set Jesus on it. And Jesus rode along, and they spread their cloaks on the road. And as we see that sentence come down, a, a lot of times we don't really understand the significance of, of some of these things that are going on in Scripture. But what's happening here is a procession, a parade, so to speak. And it's not any type of uh, procession except it's a royal procession. It's one that is saying there is something happening here. There's something big going on. And this is not just one of those traditions, you know, you know, we have all kinds of traditions. It's not one of those traditions where, you know, when you go steal a donkey, this is kind of what you do with it. This royal procession that was going on is a coronation of sorts, saying that there's a king that has come. And this king is worth celebrating. In all of the people, in all of the events, as Jesus rolled on the colt, was covered in celebration. People were watching what was going on. People were hearing that there was something unfolding. There was commotion. There was all kinds of excitement in the streets. 
There was something going on. And no matter where you landed with this guy named Jesus, you knew that something big was about to happen. There was something to be hopeful in. There was something to be excited about. Luke continues. He says, as he was drawing near, already, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all, for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying. Now, a pause here. For those of you that grew up in church, for those of you that grew up in Sunday school and you, and you read this account, you had the really nice, um, depends on your age, and so I don't want to, you know, single anybody out, but if it was a flannel graph, your flannel graph didn't have any more than the 12 disciples in it, right? In fact, probably your, your book that had the illustrations, the posters that they put on the wall, the ones that they showed you and as they read the story, you guys remember those? It very much so only had a depiction of the 12. And maybe some people in the crowd, you know, waving something or throwing something on the ground. But this was a big deal. In those things, you did not see the multitudes. This is hundreds, if not thousands of people. These are all the people that have been watching Jesus as he had been growing the ministry, as he had been moving throughout the countryside, as he'd been doing miracles, as he'd been inter interacting with people, as he had been talking with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as he had been doing the mission that God had given him to do, there were people that were interested. There were people that would follow him from place to place, hundreds if not thousands. And these people are celebrating Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. It was so loud that people took notice. There was cheering. There was all kinds of hooting and hollering and chanting, high fives going on, all kinds of things, dancing. There was all manner of excitement because finally the time they felt had come. It was finally going to happen. And so they shouted at the top of their lungs. They sang out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, when I'm excited, I think that's what I yell out too. But celebration is happening because the people that have been following Jesus for all of these years, they believed that this was the time they were coronating a king. But not every face was happy. Not every face was cheerful. Not everyone, as they were coming down the road, was happy. See, Jesus was getting a lot of attention. A lot of attention. He was going place to place, ministering to people. Tens, hundreds, and thousands of people. And his, popula his popularity was growing. And people... People wanted to see what Jesus would do next. There were people that were following Jesus because they believed he was the coming king. And then there were the others that were following Jesus because they just wanted to see what it was he going to do. 
What's he going to do? Is he going to raise somebody to the, from the dead like he did with Lazarus the other day? Is he going to heal somebody? Is he going to burn the Pharisees? What's he going to do? I mean, Jesus was that type of figure. Some followed because they wanted the encouragement. They wanted to know that there was somebody who would say that you are loved by God. And not only that you're loved by God, that you, your sin, it's forgiven. They wanted to be part of the movement. But that movement that they wanted to be part of was the one that was going to kick the Roman rule, the Roman authority out. They watched. The people in the crowd watched. And one, more than one group in that crowd was not happy. And that was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the thing about this is I'm going to give you a little bit of a theology class because this is something I learned in one of my classes. And it was, it's, it's great because it's really preacher-esque. Okay? What's the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, see, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in eternal life. They didn't, they didn't believe in that, so they were sad, you see. <laughs> it was a dad joke from the beginning. All right, so some of the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to Jesus, in the scripture, Luke continues, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're chanting? Do you hear all of the things that they are saying about you? Tell them to shut this thing down because this is not good. It was a fun little parade. Nice donkey, where'd you get it? But this thing is over. This is over the line. You've done it, you've gone too far. And Jesus gives them a reply that sent them into fury. He said, I tell you, if these people are silent, these very stones would cry out. And he says to the Pharisees, listen, you don't get it. This is the very moment that creation, that creation has been longing for. It doesn't matter what these people say. If they don't say it, the stones will cry out. Because all of creation has been waiting for this day. They would shout praise to God. They would be the ones that would cry out and sing, Hosanna, Hosanna. But see, the thing is that this wasn't the only procession that was happening that day. There's two processions in this story, and you're not going to find this one in the pages of your scripture, but it's the storylines that go along with the, what was going on in that time. To understand what's going on, though, we need to backtrack a little bit. We need to kind of step back and find out and figure out where both of these things began. Here's where they began, in Bethlehem. Both storylines begin in Bethlehem, O little town of Bethlehem. You know, we sing that at Christmas time. It was the place of Jesus' birth. Bethlehem is that place where we know that, that Jesus was born, the city of David. It was the hills where David tended the sheep. 
It was the very hills that David penned, the Lord is my shepherd. This is where people would look. This is where they were watching for Messiah to come. So, Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread, and in Aramaic means house of meat, which I think I'm Aramaic. Now, this is important because it helps us to understand something interesting about what happened on Palm Sunday. It helps us to understand the two stories, the two processions that are happening here. This is one of those amazing places where the scripture really comes alive in our hearts and our minds as we understand why it's important that Jesus had the procession down on the beginning of the week of Passover. The Bethlehem Hills, they were filled with sheep, but they weren't any ordinary sheep. These sheep were the ones that were shepherded by the descendants of David. They were the ones that were in the hills in the city of David. In essence, this was David's flock. And this is important because these sheep were the sheep for the temple. If your geography is not as stellar, kind of like mine, my geography is not that great. But if your geography is on point for this area, Bethlehem is only two miles away from Jerusalem, two miles from the temple. Now, sacrifice was one of the most central themes of Judaism. Sacrifice is one of the, the central themes. Uh, it was centered around, uh, Judaism was centered around worship in the temple and sacrifice. So every day, every single day, two lambs were sacrificed in the temple. If your math is good, that's 730 lambs a year. In addition, at Passover, people would come into Jerusalem to observe Passover. They would come in to be with family. They would come in to do their sacrifice in Jerusalem. Well, why would they do that? Because this was the sacrifice that would atone for their sins. It was a sacrifice that would make them righteous before God. It was the one that they needed in order to worship a holy God. This means that they had to atone for their sins and needed a lamb. And that there would be thousands of sheep needed for Passover because it was a lamb for every family. Every family that could afford to bring a lamb, to buy a lamb, to sacrifice in the temple, they needed one. So as you come to Jerusalem, you're passing by, think about this, you come before the week of Passover because you have to get there before, you know, you know when there's an event going on in town and you're like, we need to get there early or get there late, but this is something you couldn't get there late for? And so you get there early, you come in the week before and you come in, you spend time with family, you spend time with friends, and you enjoy uh, time together with fellowship around meal, meals. In the hills, as you look at them in Bethlehem, they're filled, then they look like they're filled white as snow. 
There's just smattering of lambs all over the hills, but then all of a sudden an avalanche comes, right? All of a sudden this white's just coming down the hill as the shepherds take these thousands of sheep into the city. It's kind of like, it, makes, it reminds me of, of, of like Thanksgiving, except um, instead of going in the supermarket and finding piles of frozen turkey, you know, you have this, uh, this, all these sheep that are coming in. Think about that. If you went to the supermarket and you went to, say, Walmart or HEB down the, down the road, and, and it was Thanksgiving Day, and instead of going to the frozen food section, you went to the, the live poultry section, it would be hundreds upon hundreds of turkeys. Now, all of these lambs are being brought, and they're being brought into the marketplace in Jerusalem so that they can be sold. But here's the thing about a sacrifice, and a sacrifice for the Passover was this, is that it had to be, the lamb had to be with your family for four days. You had to purchase the sheep or bring the sheep with you. Now, the sheep couldn't be just any sheep. It couldn't be like the snaggletooth one with the funky hair. It had to be one without blemish. It had to be one that was a prized sheep. If you're in 4-H, it would be one that won best in show, right? It was a perfect lamb. But that lamb had to be with you for at least four days. Basically, your lamb had to become your pet. It needed to become a lamb that your family loved. I don't know if you've ever brought a stray pet home. I don't know if you've ever had one show up on your doorstep, but I'll tell you one of the best pets that I ever had as a kid was a German shepherd that just came up on our house one day. And we had that dog for a very long time. It was the nicest, greatest dog that I've ever had. Now, the first few days when we had, when, when the dog came up, um, we didn't give it a name. You know, we said, oh, we're not going to feed it. And then, you know, goodness, what kind of people are we? So we fed the dog, gave it water. And then what did we do? Gave it a name. You want to know the name of the dog? Footloose. <laughs> My granddad called him Paddlefoot, but whatever. <laughs> we named him brought them in, took care of them. So think about this. You bring this lamb in, can't let it just stay outside. You got to bring it in to sleep, right? That's how you protected the animals in the day. Kids inevitably wanted to give it a name, right? As soon as you meet an animal, a stray animal, that could be possibly one that your kids say, can we keep them? It's, um, what are we going to name it, right? But here's the thing. Before the sacrifice, here's what the priest would ask you. Do you love this lamb? Have you grown attached to this lamb? Because if you don't love this lamb, it's not much of a sacrifice. If you don't love it, it's not much of a sacrifice for your family. No love, no sacrifice. No sacrifice, no forgiveness. Do you love this lamb? Does that sound familiar? Jesus, in speaking with Peter, after, after Peter denied him three times, 
he met him on the shore and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responded, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? This is Jesus identifying as the lamb of God. And this particular Sunday in Jerusalem, there were two processions. There was the unwilling procession and the willing procession. The unwilling procession were the lambs that were going down, unknowingly being led to their own slaughter. They were just going where the shepherds said to go. Thousands of perfect lambs being brought into the city. But the willing, triumphal entry into Jerusalem was led by the one, the perfect one, the one that would redeem make right and restore. So let's take one more look at the celebration of Jesus as he goes into the city. This time it's gonna be in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse eight. Here's how Matthew does the account. He says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. Now these branches were most likely palm branches. And that's why we use the term Palm Sunday. They waved the branches and they laid them down. And this was no quiet descent into Jerusalem. There were people running ahead. They were running ahead, throwing cloaks down, putting down the branches. They were running ahead, cheering and laying things down. This wasn't a quiet donkey ride in the country. People were noticing what was going on. And they said this. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. People celebrated declaring that Jesus is Messiah. And this stirred the entire city up. And they begin to ask a very, absolutely important question. It's possibly the most important question of your life. Who is Jesus? People were watching and Jesus was coming in, all the excitement, all the celebration, all of the commotion going on, and this question pulsated through the crowd. It pulsated through the town. It echoed in the hallways of the temple. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? What's the big deal? Because we've heard about this man from Nazareth. We've heard about him coming, and we've heard that he's done amazing things, but what's the big deal? And it's probably the most important question of your life. It's who is Jesus? Because the answer you give to this question, it changes everything forever. The question the answer to the question, who is Jesus? It will change your life. 
John, who wrote the Gospel of John, tells us about John the Baptist, who also saw and knew Jesus. In fact, here's what John the Baptist said about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29. He saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we take this in, and we make all of these connections Just a few paragraphs later, we see the most commonly quoted scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now that's verse 16, and most of the time we stop there, but verse 17 says this, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send him into the the world to tell you how horrible, bad you are, but in order that the world would be saved through him. He loved so much that the world would be saved through him. So that question is the most important question of your life. It brings me back to that question, and it's that question, who is Jesus to you? Because the way that you answer that question, it changes absolutely everything. Because you can write Jesus off. You can say, you know what, I've heard about Jesus, I've I've read John 3.16, I've heard it People have quoted it. They have it at sporting events. I mean, it's practically marketing, right? You can write Jesus off and you say, it doesn't really matter. You can write Sunday church off and you can say, listen, all of that stuff that you're saying is good for you, but it's not good for me. You know, see, I'm my own person and I make my own way. But ultimately, At the end of all things, did you know that there's only one question that matters as you stand before God? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a man? Is Jesus just a man? Because if that's the answer, unfortunately, here's what's going to happen. You will enter a place that was not made for you. You won't have atonement. You won't have the sacrifice of Jesus covering you. All those things that you've done, all those things in your life that do not honor God, all of those good things, bad things, in between things that you thought would make you a good person or better person than somebody else, those things don't matter. But if you say, to who is Jesus? To you, you say, Jesus is my Lord. He is the one that purchased my life with his blood. You know what happens? You enter into the kingdom. You enter into the kingdom, you're welcomed in, you're encouraged by our heavenly father. You're encouraged and loved by the God who created you. See, I believe that Jesus changed the world. And I also believe that Jesus can change you too. Because here's the thing. If it were on your merit, if it were based on the things that you do, you're never gonna make it. 
It doesn't matter how many kittens you pull out of a river. It doesn't matter how much money you give to a charity. It doesn't matter if you're better than your neighbor, if you pull their garbage bin back up to their house after garbage day. It doesn't matter if you let somebody through the intersection before you. All of those things don't matter because stacked on top of one another, you will never make it. Even if you say, hey, I'm better than the next guy. I mean, look up and down the row. I mean, are you better than, no, don't do that. Here's the thing. You can't compare yourself to salvation. You can't compare yourself against someone else and get saved. It doesn't work that way because there's nothing that you can do that can make you right before God. You can't do it and you can't earn it. And most importantly, you can't manufacture it. As we looked at these two processions into Jerusalem, one of the lambs that happened year after year after year. This procession says, God, I know that I have sin and that my sin keeps me from you. And I give you this sacrifice. But that sacrifice was temporary. That sacrifice always had to be repeated. But that second procession, the one of Jesus going down into Jerusalem, the one of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God that came and lived the perfect life, he lived a sinless life. He endured a sham trial. He took on sin that didn't belong to him. And he became the absolute perfect once for all sacrifice. No other sacrifice needed. And that sacrifice gives us entrance into the dwelling place of God. That sacrifice makes us righteous before a holy God. But if we don't allow Jesus to change our hearts, if we don't accept him for who he is and for what he did for us, then we'll never change. And we'll end up in a place where the scriptures say there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, separated from God forever. So when you say yes to Jesus, you say yes to hope and belonging. When you say yes to Jesus, you begin to move away from fear and anxiety when you say yes to Jesus, you move into the place and you understand that God gave us a way to escape the penalty of our sin. Because no matter what you do, no matter how you try to make up for it, you can't make up for it. 
You can't become righteous on your own. The only way is through Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, that's you, that's me, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. So what I want to encourage you today is not to, let, to not let fear, anger, or mistrust of people who call themselves Christian overwhelm what you think of Christ. Don't let that overshadow the truth that we know is in the Scripture. Don't let it over, overshadow the historical fact that there was a man named Jesus who did ministry in the Mediterranean Rim, who died at the hands of Roman executors, and that his followers say rose on the third day. It's history. It's fact. Don't let what other people do or say or don't say overshadow the truth of that because Jesus came for you to have life. And he invites you to join in the celebration that the king has come. The king has come and he has paved the way. He has paved the way for you to be with God forever. So we can celebrate today. That's what Palm Sunday is about. It's about waving the palm. It's about celebrating. It's about proclaiming that our sin has been forgiven. That we can lay down all of our preconceived notions, our fears, our self-righteousness, our thoughts that we can make it on our own. And we can lay all those things down at the feet of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth in life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Would you pray with me?